Mr. Leon, are you with us? And I'll note to the court that he has signed on under uh, you, you, Nikki Connor. Yes. I am here, Your Honor. Uh, wait, wait, hold on one second. Mr. We're checking to be sure everybody's here first. <laughs> Mr. Learman? I yes, ma'am, I'm here. Great. Case number... Okay. Go ahead. Sorry, Judge. Case number no, 20-1427, the District of Nebraska, United States versus Dewan Sharon. Okay, Mr. Leon, you're on now. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, my name is Michael Leon, and I am the attorney for the appellant here. My appointment in this case started back in April of 19, or eight, 2018. This appeal raises the question of whether the district court should have allowed a duress instruction, and related to that is an instruction which uh, mirrors the language of the Supreme Court case U.S. v. Dixon on the burden of proof on duress, and at the very least, the court should have allowed the defendant to argue its case through voluntariness. Uh, from the very beginning of this case, through my initial appointment, my meeting with my client, through the two proffers that my client did at the office of the U.S. attorney, through the brief, pre-trial brief, through opening statements and the evidence submitted on behalf of Mr. Sharon, it was clear that he was going to admit the underlying conduct, which was, uh, I believe, almost required to justify a duress uh, defense. Uh, well, well, is it actually uh, required? Don't you have to have some evidence that goes to each of the uh, elements of the defense? And isn't there uh, evidence that he could have walked away uh, where he was dropped off? He was in a position where he did not need to undertake uh, the activities he did to, uh, to effectuate what essentially uh, was uh, the alleged robbery or theft. Your Honor, in every duress case that I've reviewed from the Eighth Circuit through the Supreme Court, there, that is always an issue that's discussed. But is that an issue for the judge or the jury to decide? In this case, he's dropped off 50 feet from the scene. He believes that all individuals at the scene are armed. He believes that all are, in, he knows that all are in vehicles. He has neither a weapon nor a vehicle or a gun or a, or a phone, excuse me. And he believes that he will get run down and shot. And in fact, if you look at the video of the actual transaction, one of the gentlemen that's in the back of the car tells the CI to run him down and shoot him. Uh, I believe that his fear was justified. He knew these gentlemen were uh, dangerous. He knew they had a propensity for selling guns. I think you can look at the testimony even of the uh, investigative officer. He had supervised three prior gun searches with this CI from these two people. Uh, I believe the evidence clearly shows that the issue of whether he had that opportunity you recognize that 50 feet in a car, if you're traveling 30 miles an hour, is one second. Uh, 
I don't believe that the evidence should be, the jury, the judge should be allowed to make that decision based on the evidence that's in this record. But as I said, Mr. Sharon testified, previously having proffered, that he admitted the underlying conduct and he testified quite clearly that he had reasonably feared for his immediate serious bodily injury and he didn't think he had any options. If you look at this, he didn't even know that this was going down until just before it happened. He had run into these two earlier that day by accident as he was walking near Leavenworth and they had got out of their car, threatened him. You can look at Exhibit 102, you can see that. It has nothing to do with the issues in this case. They threatened him because he owed them money. That incident ends and you can tell from the timestamps on the various videos that they must have driven from Park Avenue and Leavenworth almost immediately to meet with the undercover CI. That meeting took place at roughly 1240, lasts about 20 minutes, nothing happens. There's really no evidence as to why nothing happens other than the testimony that the individual that was supposedly had the guns didn't show up. They leave and for the next 45 minutes to an hour, the two individuals, Mr. Tapp and Mr. Yard, drive around looking for somebody to be a patsy. They drive back upon my client, they cut him out from his friends, they take him into Hanscom Park, set him down, and he testifies on the record that one of them threatens to shoot him if he doesn't do it. They put him in the car and they drive back to the same location they were originally, which is a location I'm familiar with because it's kind of in the neighborhood I grew up, but it's near the intersection of Saddle Creek and the radial highway. They drop him off 50 feet away. Now the question is, could he have run away? In every case that I have seen, including Bailey, where the Supreme Court case, where the defense or the jury instruction was given, you can always make the argument. The question is whether that's a question that should be determined by the jury or the judge. I know you're getting close to rebuttal, so I don't want to mess the whole thing up, but I want to jump ahead to something that you had said you were going to argue, and that is that you were not allowed to argue the question of voluntariness and intent. When I went through and read the closing arguments, I saw some argument that your client got up in the morning not intending to commit a crime, and he didn't intend to commit the crime during the day, and he didn't intend to commit the crime. There was testimony that you highlighted that emphasized that your client had felt that he'd been taken over, his will had been taken over, and that he'd been threatened, and that he thought the drug transaction would force him into a place where this disruption was taking place, and you argued that where your client was dropped off, he didn't have a cell phone, he didn't really have any way to outrun these people, and there were people 
uh, in the community that were part of this group that were following him. He was afraid. And so all that's in front of the jury. Um, and so wasn't it really argued and wasn't the question of intent and voluntariness necessarily decided by the jury anyhow? Your Honor, an interesting final argument. I sat there with Judge Rossiter over my left shoulder, the U.S. Attorney over my right shoulder. And if you start looking at around, I think in the transcript about 269, you'll see the discussions where the judge very severely limits me. I can't argue duress. He says I can tell the jury why I'm not arguing since that was discussed before them. He doesn't tell me that I can do any more than that. He, uh, when I ask him about whether I can argue voluntariness, he says at page 274, he's likely to sustain an argument. So the whole time I'm arguing, every time I get to any of the issues which you have highlighted, I fear I hear rustling on both sides of me. And in fact, on one point, a buzzer goes off during my arguments. It turns out it's the U.S. attorney's, I think, his phone. And there's it's kind of a light situation. I feel like there's going to be a hook come out and pull me off the stage. But in, in fact, I do not argue that. If you'll read my final argument, is essentially a reading of the instructions that were given. Mm -hmm. This is a question, and I think the evidence was clearly in the record, that should have been a lot decided by the jury. As I looked at the jury, they looked Counselor, at you're, me. You're approaching, you're approaching about a minute left. You want to save it for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Sure. Uh, and so, uh, Mr. Laird. Good morning, Your Honor, and uh, may it please the court, my name is Matt Learman. I'm an assistant U.S. attorney representing the appellee in this case, Your Honor. On August 28, 2019, Mrs. Sharon was convicted by a jury of robbery of United States property in violation of 18 United States Code 2112. During and in the course of the trial, he had proffered several different jury instructions to, to include affirmative defenses of coercion, duress, elements, burden of proof, and a voluntariness instruction. The court found that he did not meet his elements with respect to each element of either of those defenses, coercion or duress, and therefore those instructions were not proper as a matter of law. In particular, he is, found is that really a Excuse me, is there really a distinction between duress and coercion uh, in our circuit? I mean, I'll just tell you that I was on the pattern jury instruction committee when we wrote the pattern instruction and we arrived at the conclusion that, that duress and coercion were the same thing. And if you look at how we captioned it, it is the same thing. And I'm frankly, I think that distinction is, is, is not uh, ascertainable um, in, our, in our jurisprudence, but maybe I'm, I'm wrong. Well, Judge, uh, the court actually did specifically state that, and I'm referring to the Jankowski case. Um, the court wrote that the de de defense of duress is separate and distinct from coercion. Now, What's they're the very. That case, counsel. Uh, okay, yeah. don't, don't, don't worry about it. Our, our clerks can sure find that. Now, here's, here's a question I have for you. Sure. I think that was in 1999. Say it again, Your Honor. I think that was in 1999. Yeah. It is 99. Yeah, okay, thank you. That's probably half of it. Now, here's the question I have for you. I know you rely on Harper, but you never mentioned Dixon, and Dixon came out in June 22 of 2006. Harper, I know, came out later, 
but Harper doesn't mention Dixon. And as you know, the other side relies on Dixon, Dixon, Dixon. What would you say about the United States Supreme Court decision in Dixon that you would want us to know? So I think Dixon is unremarkable for a very obvious reason. Dixon didn't go to address the sufficiency of evidence to entitle the defendant to get a jury instruction on on duress, Your Honor. It simply stands for the proposition that um, the due process clause isn't violated by placing the burden of proof on the defendant to show well, by counsel, a preponderance. Does say, now, be careful, because the Supreme Court says, and I'm very close to their word, the burden of the defendant by a preponderance of the evidence to show evidence of duress. Uh, Absolutely. So they did address that, so address Dixon. No, and that's that's what I'm I'm saying, Your Honor. That's what the proposition that it stands for, that the due process clause is not violated by placing the burden of proof on the defendant or by showing a preponderance of evidence on each element of an affirmative defense. That's what it that's what it stands for. Now, the defendant in this case uh, suggests that Dixon stands for the idea that that these are things that you go to the jury as though the district court doesn't play a role as the gatekeeper of evidence to decide the legal sufficiency and whether that's been met by the defendant. And in this case, the district court was was correct. Um, there's been no no sufficient evidence produced on a single element of the two elements in coercion which is 9.02, or the additional elements that are also contained in duress, which, um, as Jankowski um, noted, that contains two additional elements, those being that the defendant didn't recklessly or negligently place himself in the situation where he would have to commit the criminal act, or, or the other one, which is the direct causal relationship uh, reasonably anticipated between the commission of the act and the avoidance of the threatened harm. In particular, there was no sufficient threat of serious bodily injury or death to the defendant. As the district court noted, these are merely subjective beliefs based upon uh, the defendant's own statements. And, and his credibility was questioned, Judge. Um, during it, my cross-examination of him, we had asked him... Well, you said he, the magic word credibility to me, and that sounds like you're making an argument for the defense. Credibility is for the jury. No, it's not. Uh, most importantly, it's, it's the first thing that has to happen is the district court has to determine whether or not, based upon the standard, the objective standard of whether or not serious bodily injury or death threat actually occurred. That's the first thing that we have to determine. And the only thing that the defendant testified to were these vague and ambiguous statements that um, something to the effect of, you'll find out what time of day it is. Mm -hmm. And then he makes a reference to no ifs, ands, or buts. But that's not a specific... And there's a hand well, gesture, too, isn't there? He, he makes reference to a hand gesture as though mimicking a firearm. But importantly, there's no firearm seen. Um, at no point does defendant ever see a firearm. Now, juxtapose that against um, statements which are more threatening in Harper, for instance. Uh, you don't know who you're messing with. And in that particular case, Judge, you'll recall, um, defendant was taken to a remote location and an actual gun was put to his head, forcing counsel, him... Counsel, yes. does, it make any, does it make any difference whether he knew they were gun runners? 
I don't think there's any evidence to show that he knew that they were gun runners. Judge, there's nothing in the record because he wasn't part of any prior deals um, re relative to the CI purchasing the guns. So there's nothing in the record to suggest that he knew that they were gun runners. And under these circumstances, uh, I, I don't think it would be material anyway. He stated that he had previously dealt with at least the one individual, Yar, on previous drug transactions and that at no point had Yar ever beaten him up or gone after him or anything. And that's important because as this court addressed in several other occasions, in several other occasions, cases in particular, Blankenship, that just having a reputation for violence or just having uh, been known as somebody to, to be tough or intimidating is not enough. For instance, in Logan, um, that was an individual who had a reputation for violence, and he made the statement, uh, the aggressor says he was going to put Logan six feet under if he was ever crossed. Um, this court held that wasn't enough. There was no evidence of past retaliation on the part of the aggressor in that case, and there was no evidence of what crossing him meant. Juxtapose so that. Really, so, so it's really more a question of immediacy under Harper. Absol absolutely. So. Harper, Logan, Blankenship all address the issue of immediacy. And uh, Blankenship, for instance, where you had a neighbor come over with three other individuals and they were threatening Blankenship. Blankenship goes out the back door, goes to a neighbor's house, gets a gun, returns, and ends up shooting um, the neighbor. Now, the, this court held that, you know, at the point that Blankenship had escaped, the threat's over. There's no, there's no additional coercive effects I'm there at that point. And I was very specific in asking Sharon about that issue, um, specifically about when he was dropped off some 50 or 100 feet away in the auto zone. Um, There's a number of questions that I asked him about. Could they see you? Could you see them? He makes a statement of having to peek around the corner that he was free of them. And he, and he actually testifies to having made a choice. In other words, you could have left or you could have stayed. You chose to stay. He acknowledged that. And what he said was that it was the fear of future harm that made him do this as well. In other words, they know where I live. And at some point, even if they were to get in trouble, um, they would be released from prison. They would come come find me. Again, that doesn't meet, meet. It's insufficient to provide him with the necessary coercive effect to continue on with that. This court, as well as, you know, in Blankenship, Logan, Harper, um, the threat of future harm is general, it's speculative, and it's not enough to meet his burden of proof. So just with respect to that element alone, he has failed. His ability to avoid it um, by either contacting the police or some through some other legal mechanism, again, he failed um, the element in that regard. Not to mention the fact that that the proffered instructions that he gave um, did not follow any of the pattern jury instructions. They tended to be a hybrid um, between duress and coercion, even though they're separate. And uh, again, they contained I, I additional they elements. Model instructions. I thought he offered the Eighth Circuit model instructions, weren't they? He did, he did not. Um, well, how close are they at the Eighth Circuit model instructions? Not that we follow those like a uh, religious text, but still, tell me. It, it was they're pretty close. Um, okay, that's, that's, prob that's, that's probably enough, and we can look at them. 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It contains surplus language. The problem is, is that with respect to the duress, if if we're still saying that Jankowski is good law in 1999, okay. but it does not contain the additional your, two elements. Your time is expired. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you for the argument. Mr. Leon, we're back for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. The question from the court about Dixon, uh, Dixon, contrary to what the uh, response from the government was, dealt with the burden of proof for the jury to determine on the evidence, not for the judge. It settled a conflict among the various circuits on what the jury should view when looking at the evidence on duress. If you go back to the other Supreme Court case, Bailey, a case where the Supreme Court, in a case where the duress instruction was given, or excuse me, what was not given, because a failure to uh, show a, a, a surrender. But the Supreme Court said it is precisely because a defendant is entitled to have the credibility of his testimony judged by a jury. It is essential that the testimony meet a minimum standard, a minimum standard as to each element of the defense. Now, okay, now Mr. Leon, your, your time has expired. Yeah, quoting the Supreme Court, I was going to let you continue past your time. Course, but but uh, uh, you may have one sentence to sum up. Your Honor, in the brief of the U.S. Attorney and in the uh, arguments today, the U.S. Attorney said there's a credibility question, my client. And I don't argue that every witness that testifies has a credibility question, but that is determined by the jury, not by okay. the judge. Thank it's you very much. It's not a steep burden. Yeah. Thank you. Thank here. you very much. And also, I should thank you for uh, taking the assignment under the Criminal Justice Act. The, the court thank acknowledges you, and appreciates, appreciates you doing that. And uh, Ms. Duncan McKee, that exhausts the calendar for today? It does, Your Honor.